0: So we're going to start this morning, we're going to be talking a little bit. Uh, this story this morning comes out of uh, Second Chronicles, we're going to start with, and this is the story of the consecration of Solomon's temple. This is the first temple in Jerusalem, and, uh, and, and Solomon has built this, and the time has come for uh, consecrating it. It's been seven years under construction, uh, 30,000 people working on it for seven years, Uh, to build this temple Uh, the equivalent of tens of millions of dollars of materials have gone into this temple and they've come to the final you know it's finally completed they've come to the day they're going to consecrate it and Solomon has built this platform this bronze platform it's 15 feet by 15 feet by nine feet tall he comes up and he stands on top of it and he lifts up his prayer asking God to to come and be present in this place and if you actually read the prayer through, uh, he, he's really clear, you know, that, that you know, God is God of all the universe and all the stars and all of creation. So there, there's no way that God's going to be contained in this temple, but rather that he's just asking that God would meet his people in this place. Uh, and so he has this powerful prayer. And, and in the midst of that, uh, the glory of God descends on the temple, uh, the you know, light and smoke and fire, it comes down uh, and, and it consumes the offering of, of, of 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. But not a word from God is spoken. And so the day ends, everybody goes home, and, and, and it comes to evening, and, and Solomon lays his head down, and in the night, God speaks to him. I've heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there's no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house So that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. As for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish your royal throne, as I made covenant with your father David, saying, You shall never lack a successor to rule over Israel. But if you turn aside, And forsake my statutes and my commandments that I've set before you. And go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will pluck you up from the land that I have given you. And this house, which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And regarding this house now exalted, everyone passing by will be astonished and say, Why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this house? And then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord the God of their ancestors, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they adopted other gods and worshiped them and served them, and therefore he has brought all this calamity upon them so Solomon has this uh, dream where God speaks this uh, back to him after consecrating the temple, this word that you know if, if this is my place and, and if my people will come here, I will meet them here and and, and any time that you know things are going bad in the country and things are, are not working right and there's drought there's famine if my people come here I will hear them and I will heal the land but if my people go and worship other gods (laughs) then I will drive them out of this land and I will destroy this temple that's a very clear word of warning now now this story appears almost verbatim this is second chronicles it appears almost verbatim in first kings the ninth chapter the interesting thing is, is there's a little small difference in the midst of them. First Kings leaves out this little word of hope that's in the middle of this. Uh, basically because the historian of 1 Kings knows what's going to come. He's writing this story from the, the viewpoint of the exile. And he knows that the, the people of Israel are going to worship other gods. He knows that the land will be destroyed and the temple destroyed and the people will be taken into exile. And so he writes it um, really in a darker tone, if you will, uh, leaving out the kind of hopeful parts of this that, that God is speaking. Whereas the chronicler includes this little piece in the middle of it. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. The, the chronicler holds on to that hope that you know, if the people will just turn back to God, God will do amazing things in the midst of the land. And so as we come to this week and we're going to celebrate July 4th, I'm going to invite you to think about how that word might be a word of hope into your life. Let's pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you alone are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So um, when I come to July 4th, um, I come with a, a, a certain perspective that comes a little bit out of my family history. Um, when, uh, when we got ready to move here, we came here in 2001. We didn't know we were coming here until we went to annual conference. We discovered there that we were going to move that year and, and come among you. And uh, we'd already made plans for the holidays and everything. And Randy Berry was, uh, was wonderful and gracious to us and uh, helped us with the move and stored our stuff and everything so we could go ahead with our Vacation plans. Uh, we had planned, uh, we went to Colonial Williamsburg, took the kids up to Colonial Williamsburg, uh, and we took them there uh, uh, partly for the history of it, but also to show them something in particular. Uh, if you go to Colonial Williamsburg and you go in the Bruton Parish Church there, and you go up and you look on the end of the second pew on the right, uh, you will see a brass plaque, plaque there with my mother's ancestor's name, Gideon Macon. Uh, Gideon was one of the settlers uh, of Williamsburg and settled in with the aldermen of that church. And uh, we wanted them to understand that 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 part of our family runs way deep in American history, uh, coming in uh, before the nation was even organized as a nation and settling in here. Matter of fact, one of his—I can't remember if it's his grandkid or great-grandkids— is Martha Washington, married to George. So, you know, there's this long line, and they, and they come down, and, they, and, and you start looking at all the, the Macon clan, and that's, you know, Macon George is named after this bunch. But you, know, you, you start coming down through that, and, and, and you have this really interesting history. Uh, Gideon was there, alderman of the church, a member of the House of Burgess of Virginia. Uh, members of that clan were members of the First Continental Congress. Uh, they go all through. They they multiply and they scatter all through American history, uh, and you find them in all kinds of places, all over the places. You read about the history of the family. And so, you know, you start reading through it, and it's it's really interesting to kind of read through. You know, uh, one of the early plantations in the United States was uh, the plantation on Macon Island that one of them owned and ran, and yes, they had slaves on that. But you have other parts of the family that also are part of the Underground Railroad and part of the abolitionist movement. Uh, When when the Civil War comes on, some of them fight on the north side, and some of them fight on the south side of of, of that battle and are are in the midst of that. Um, Some of them are great patriots. Some of my mother's family have been involved in every uh, branch of the military and every battle that this country has been in, and they're great patriots. Five of them have also been hung for desertion. Uh, so you know we have this interesting mix and then you know out of that family you have getting married into that that Macon family comes down you have my dad coming along and my dad is the illegitimate child of a woman that's part Native American now he he told us for years it was Creek and Ashland actually did some research she's actually on the Choctaw registry Uh, so you know we have this interesting kind of mix of family that comes together and if you take our family and you look at our family history this is what you see you see a group of people who are Uh, the victors and the vanquished they are the invaders and the dispossessed they are the oppressed and the oppressors they are the slaveholders and the abolitionists they are the patriots and they are the deserters and here's the interesting thing about that in the midst of all of that craziness they are all church people they're all committed church people They come over. Originally, uh, the the oldest branch were French Huguenots that came to England to escape persecution and then came from England over here. And then they divide into all kinds of branches. But but we sometimes begin to think, you know, okay, well, everybody thinks the same. And I want you to hear that. You know, if you look at my family, it's messy. It's really messy. Uh, You know, and and you have this really interesting mix. Uh, Early in in the history of this country... uh, the, the, the founding fathers and mothers wanted to be sure that, that in this nation that, that the government and, and the church would be separated from each other. And so they designed the structure uh, in that way. Now, we sometimes get confused a little bit about that. But uh, early on as they wrestled through that and were trying to understand what that meant, uh, Virginia passed an ordinance. In Virginia, uh, in Virginia the, the deal was you could go to any church you wanted to, but you had to go to church if you wanted to vote. Get it? And and so there was a big, you know, big uproar over that. And some of you will remember Thomas Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptists about this, in which he used a term called separation, the wall of separation of church and state. You should know he got that from a Baptist preacher. It's not original with him. He took it from someone's sermon and used it. Uh, and so they had this understanding that, that, that very clearly in the beginning of the country, that the, the separation, you know, the establishment, the institution of the government and the institutions of the church should be separate, because they had experienced what happened when that didn't happen, when they, they experienced what, that when those two became identical, that the government often became tyrannical, or the church became just another political body. And if you want to hear a kind of a modern, interesting twist on that. In Denmark right now, there's a law that forbids them from making kosher foods because they decided that the rights of the animals superseded the rights of the Jewish people to make kosher food. Uh, so it gets really interesting when all this stuff kind of comes together and gets mixed up and, and the way it gets changed and pulled together and mixed. And so the, the, they decided, you know, right on, we're, we're going to keep those separate. Now, what they did not intend was that people's religious values would not inform the public square. There was never an intent for that to happen, although, you know, we sometimes have people that think that. That was not the the intent of that. It was always the intent of the founding fathers and mothers that people's religious values and understandings would inform their political views. And so you have a, early on, you have George Washington making comments um, along this line. Mankind, when left to themselves, are unfit for their own government. You can say an amen to that if you want, but... Let's be honest about who we are, right? And and then let us, with caution, indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. So it's clear understanding that that uh, you know our values and our religion uh, would inform the public square, but the. It would not be identical. So going back here to Solomon, when, when God speaks this, uh, this word to him in the midst of the dream, at this point in time, uh, the people Israel, my people, are, are a very defined group of people. It's the people Israel and, and the government and religion are both the same at this point when God speaks into this. Now, if you uh, do Brian Russell's Bible study sometime on a, called called Invitation, uh, he traces the covenant movement of, of Of God's people. And it's kind of an opening, uh, an ever widening uh, uh, arc that this makes. You start with Abraham, uh, and then Abraham's immediate family, and then the tribes of Israel, and then the nation of Israel, and then the world. So that God's covenant is ever widening through the scope of history as it comes down through Scripture. So that by the time we reach the person of Christ, the covenant is offered to everyone in the world. So when when this passage runs and it says, if my people, uh, Solomon hears that in his dream as applying very specifically, very specifically to Israel and the temple but we, at our point, when we begin to see it, know that the covenant has widened uh, in historic, in, uh, historically from that point in time. And you hear that, that God says, my people. The language is not my God. We, we sometimes say this and sometimes hear other people saying it where we say, well, my God would do this or my God wouldn't do that. That's not biblical language. Uh, in, in Scripture, God never belongs to us. We always belong to God. You know, it's my people. If my people would do this. And and I want to caution you a little bit about understanding or thinking you understand or have down really good who who God's people are. Because God is constantly surprising us with this. Go ahead and and read through when when God is talking about his people and and who else might be his people. Uh, In Acts of the Apostles, Paul stands on the Acropolis in Greece and he says, uh, he's speaking to the Greeks, And he says, "'For in him we live and move and have our being.'" You've heard that language. As even some of your own points have said, for we too are his offspring. He's trying to get across to them that you may not yet know who God is, but, but God knows who you are, and you can be part of the family of God. Uh, Hosea, I will sow for uh, him for myself in the land, and I will have pity on Lo Ruhamah, and I will say to Lo Ami, You are my people, and he shall say, You are my God. And then Paul refers to that in Romans, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved, and, and Jesus and John, I have other sheep that don't belong to this folk. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. So you know, when I come to, to, to deal with this kind of place where we wrestle with the complexity of where our religion and our civic uh, life come together, uh, you know I have all this craziness in, in the background of my family that I'm aware of, and let's be honest for just a minute. If you traced your family history back, it would look just as crazy as mine. So don't, you know, I mean, it would be just as nuts. Uh, so, you know, we have that, all that kind of stuff going on. But, but also we have this awareness that sometimes uh, who God's people are is not who we expect. Uh, I can remember the first time I got to go to, uh, to uh, Durban a number of years back to the World Methodist Conference. And, you know, we Methodists we, in, in America, we think we know who everybody is. And then you go there and you realize, oh, my gosh, you know, we're just a speck. Because here's all these other people in the Methodist movement, different Methodist churches, all the Wesleyan churches, all the Salvation Army churches, all the Pentecostal churches, all the Assembly of God churches from all around the world have gathered and we're a little speck in the midst of it. And you realize that even under the umbrella Methodist, Christianity is, is much bigger than I understood. And if you go to just general conference for the United Methodist Church, you'll begin to understand that it's bigger than we think. Because when you go to General Conference, what you'll find is 30% of the United Methodist Church lives on the continent of Africa. Another 12% are in the Philippines, Vietnam, and Mongolia. There are are international churches on the face of the earth, but there's only a few global churches. And by that, I mean they're they're everywhere, and they're governed globally. Uh, And that would be the Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church, the Worldwide Anglican Communion, and us. We're on every continent but Antarctica. And when we get together, we have people from every place who come together to make decisions. And it's not what we think it is all the time. I mean, it's, it's this global body, and they look different than us, and they talk different languages than we do, and they worship in different ways than we do. I mean, if you go to Cuba sometime, and you're blessed to do that, at the beginning of the service, they're going to move all the chairs back in the front of the room, because we're going to dance for a half hour before we get into doing any praying. It's a party. You know, worship is going to go on two and a half hours. And you're going to be really tired at the end of it, but it's a wonderful time. It's awesome and amazing. It's very different from what we're used to. But it's just as real and it's just as powerful. When we come together as the the people of God, one of the things God surprises us with is that folks don't always look like us, sound like us, worship like us. And so this, this global group comes together and it challenges us because it says, you know, sometimes our, our Christianity, you know, we're, we're members of, of, of the United States, we're citizens, but we're also part of this kingdom of God that's so much bigger than what most of us understand. And we have to learn to kind of elevate our thinking sometimes and understand that the global church doesn't always see things like we do. We think things, we see things, and we think we understand what Christianity is, and you go to one of these gatherings, and what you realize is you're just talking middle America. It's bigger, and there's a power and a life in it that we sometimes don't appreciate. We've talked a lot about, right now, about general conference coming up, and folks get worried about that, and what they're going to do, and all, and, and What we sometimes in the United States forget is that the real issue, the real issue that General Conference deals with every time they get together is can we stay in one piece as a global church? Because the rest of the world doesn't see things the same way we do. And how do we do that and what does it mean? I mean, if you look in Scripture and you say, well, well, you know, if God's going to surprise us, well, who are the children of God? I mean, who are God's people? Let us tell the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh <clears throat> or of the will of man, but of God. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, uh, so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine like stars in the world. See what love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we're God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this. When He's revealed, we will be like Him for we will see Him as He is. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the parent, loves the child... By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. I mean, this understanding that the children of God are the people who give themselves wholly and completely to God. Now, let me be really clear with some language with you. All people are God's creation, and all people are loved of God, and the covenant is extended to all people. But only those who give themselves wholly and completely to God are called children of God within the language of Scripture. And that is so much a broader fellowship than what we understand sometimes. And so we we live in this really interesting time when when barriers are being broken down and we can communicate across cultures and outside of our world and and we're getting a picture of the kingdom of God that's so much bigger and how how do we put all that together? It's complicated. It's a complex thing. So anytime you have someone coming to you and saying, well, you know, if you're a Christian, you're going to think exactly like this, raise question, wonder about that. Because the kingdom is so much bigger than what we understand. I mean, God speaks to Solomon and says, Listen, you know, when, when, when you're struggling as a nation, when you're struggling as a people and things aren't the way you should be, don't, don't start trying to point fingers at other people and decide what everybody else needs to do, but rather, you know, humble yourself, pray, seek my face, turn from your wicked ways, and then I'll hear and I will forgive and I will heal. There's a, a wonderful passage that was in one of J.D.'s Walt's well, seedbed text this week about what happens when we forget who we are as the people of God. And he says, Without the mission of God, we are destined to substitute all manner of strategic initiatives to accomplish our own individual and tribal missions, to find life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, whatever we interpret those words to mean. Our strategies will be built on the premise of scarcity rather than abundance. And our political ideologies will guide us far more than our theological convictions, often with the former masquerading as the latter. And when we come to the holiday, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things where uh, maybe we need to kind of reach back across to what our, our brother James taught us, you know, Right? Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. You know, seek God's face. Humble yourselves. Repent. Allow God to be at work at you. Uh, If you're struggling with things in the world, maybe instead of trying to fix everybody else, it's time to lean into God and let God heal you. So it's complicated. (laughs) I just have to admit that. And And I'll tell you, every time I fly out of the country and I get to go to other places, what a wonderful thing it is to be with our brothers and sisters around the world and to celebrate with them in all the different places they are and all the different languages they do and the different ways that they do it. It's just amazing. Uh, It's just overpowering and and wonderful. But every time I come home, (laughs) it's wonderful to come back home (laughs) and to be in this place. And for all of us, that's the challenge. What does it mean to be citizens of the United States? What does it mean to be citizens of the kingdom of God? And how do those come together in powerful ways? Let's pray. Mighty Father, we give you thanks for the abundance you have poured out upon us, for the blessing of living in this place and in this time where we have so much and we are blessed with so much, and we ask that you remind us of all the blessing that you have poured out upon us in the abundance. That we, we might not live from a sense of scarcity. We might not only see the things that bother us. But we might see all the richness that you've given us. So that when we come to you, we come not out of a sense of scarcity or a sense of want. But we come to you aware of the blessing and abundance you've given us. And, and we willingly humble ourselves before you. We seek your face. We come and we repent of the wickedness of our hearts so that we might be forgiven, so that we might be made whole, and so that your healing might be poured out upon our land. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.